Welcome to Unsuitable on Ray Radio, the award-winning financial services and business advisory podcast that challenges your old school business practices and the traditional business suit culture. Our guests are industry professionals and experts who will challenge you to think beyond the suit and tie while offering you meaningful modern solutions to help enhance your company's growth. And I'm your host, Dave Kane. The IRS has replaced the existing rules for auditing partnerships with a set of new streamlined rules. Chris Axine, a principal at Ray & Associates with a passion about pass-through entities, is here to explain what these new rules are and how they will impact partners, members, and partnerships going forward. Welcome back to Unsuitable, Chris. Thanks, Dave, for having me back. Appreciate it. This is an important topic, so glad to be here. Yeah, we just got together last week. We tried to cover this, didn't have enough room, so we uh, booked you again. Yeah, I'm, I'm all in. Your, uh, your booking agent's doing a nice job getting you on these shows. Do I get a commission? You Yes, you do. <laughs> yeah, watch your mailbox for okay. the check. So, you know, we're going to talk about here in a minute about, um, you know, operating agreements and in, in partnerships and things like that, that uh, a new rule that's maybe, um, you know, flying under the radar a little bit. But before we do that, uh, I think we want to identify that anytime you talk about an operating agreement, that's a legal document. Uh, today, we're not going to get into, you know, legal issues in the legal side of this. So we want to encourage listeners as they listen today that, that you need to talk to counsel when we start talking about operating agreements. What we want to cover today is more of the tax implications and some of the things uh, to be on the lookout for. That's right. A good point, Dave. So uh, as accountants, we can we can help advise certainly on the tax law and, and ramifications of that and how that might impact the operating agreement. But as you pointed out, that's a legal document that the um, attorneys need to be involved with. And, and we've worked um, hand in hand with legal counsel for clients um, as we've uh, helped them implement um, these new rules and figured out uh, what all they need to do right. um, as we go forward. You know, before we dig into these new rules, you know, let's hit, you know, some of the highlights of the importance well, there's so of an many. operating agreement. Just give me two or three. So uh, the, the operating agreement is the legal playbook for how the the partners will conduct their business and they've chosen to do it in a partnership format versus, for example, maybe as an escort. Uh, and so the, it, among other things, it talks about who can be an owner and, and, and a partner in the partnership and, and how you become one, how you exit. There's restrictions uh, a lot of times on, um, on your ownership and that to prevent you from transferring to somebody that, if we were partners that I might not want to be a partner with. So, you know, maybe we call that like a right of first refusal or outright restriction on transferability. So legal terms to be certain, but that's, if you don't have an operating agreement on the tax side of things, we don't know how to prepare a tax return. Right. Uh, you know, I think we, you've under undersold the importance of, of this document and, uh, we can only share, you know, stories with, with our audience that you and I both been involved where, that document uh, was uh, not followed and created uh, havoc uh, throughout the uh, the partnership. That's right. And oftentimes, too, um, the partners, and, and this won't come as a surprise, but they will sign the document and they don't know what's in it. Right. And so they have, they're thinking one thing, and then they may get their K-1s from when we prepared the tax returns, and they may some, say something different 
and they're scratching their head going, you know, this isn't what I expected. And well, did you read your agreement? The hundred page agreement. And they can be hundreds of pages of, of, of stuff. Right. That's right. And, and, uh, you know, if you think out loud, you know, in a, in a, in a partnership that has a lot of things going on, a lot of times you'll have uh, some capital guys, the money guys, you know, that are, that are passive. And then you have the, the action guys, the activity guys, the idea people. And, and that's the majority of, of what we see in our client base is you have the idea people and you have the money people and coming together to form a, a venture to, to execute and, and make some money for everybody. Sure, sure. Um, you know, again, I want to, you know, maybe throw a little caution in the wind. Uh, you know, the internet is, is great, but it's a dangerous place to find, uh, you know, documents. Uh, you know, you can go on the internet, find out how to fix your brakes. You can fix your s- slice. And, really, uh, I haven't found that one yet. You haven't found that. Keep on looking. Of course, you got that draw, so you're you're pretty good. But but I, I did uh, prior to going on there, I did find a a template for free for doing your operating agreement. Yeah, I, I've seen some of that, and and I've actually had an instance where we had to help a client out, and and they had done that. They they had gone to the internet to find a a boilerplate document that they more or less inserted their company name and EIN and signed it. The the problem with that is it's uh, many things in life. It's as good as what you paid for it. And it, it actually had in this particular one, it had some provisions that were contrary to each other and, and was just a, a disaster. I mean, it really wasn't I don't, effective for anything. Uh, and the good news for us and our client in this regard was that helped us get out of a, a tax jam in terms of the type of entity that they thought they were versus what they wanted to be uh, and, and what they had filed with the IRS and what the IRS thought they were. And so that, it turns out, in the end, was a good thing that we could fall back on on that to, to get them out of a, of a tax jam. But you need to, and I know... We run into this clients. They get antsy when you talk about well, you know, go see your attorney and have a discussion, or let's have a meeting with the CPA and the attorney in the room, and they see the meter running. But there's a reason why you have the professionals in the room because they're looking out for your best interest. And when you don't do that, you're you're going to regret that later on. Sure. And you and I could devote uh, a couple podcasts to just telling stories about how the operating agreement was not followed. Right. Well, there's, it's legion, uh, you know, the stories that are out there and, and a cautionary tale and of, of what not to do. And, and that's why, as we're working with our younger staff, we drill into them the concept of, you know, do we have a copy of the operating agreement? And if we don't, we need to get it. Sure, sure. So let's dig into this significant changes to partnership audit procedures and uh, the operating agreement. Um, uh, let's start. What what's going on? Sure. Yeah. So the, the background on this is, uh, and and as you astutely pointed out in the intro, this is kind of a little bit flown on uh, the radar uh, with the Tax Reform Act that happened a year ago. This this actually was um, a part of final regulations issued by the IRS that first became effective for tax year 2018. So the year that we just um, filed coming out of busy season, and. With the tax law change that also impacted 2018, it kind of got lost in the shuffle. The background on this is the IRS has a history of 
very low audit rates on partnerships. Um, in part, that's because they don't have the manpower to to look at them, and uh, there are. Uh, it, it's become a common way for businesses to uh, to do business in the choice of entity because there's lots of flexibility uh, with with LLCs taxes taxed as partnerships. So the historical context there is is they've had a, a low audit rate because you run into situations where. Um, under the old rules, if you had a partnership with fewer than 100 partners and the IRS came in and audited that partnership and they came with, uh, with an adjustment, they would then have to roll that adjustment through you know, 90 plus partners tax returns. Uh, and it is very hard. You, you might not be surprised to learn that the IRS's computer systems are, they have lots of them. They don't talk to each other very well. And so it, it was very hard for them to track and understand if they made a hundred dollar adjustment at the partnership level, that that a hundred dollars was going to make its way through all of the partners that are in that particular partnership return, and at the right, if you will, the right level of tax being paid on it. They just couldn't track it. Yeah, right, right. You know, I have to admit, when this first came out, I, I thought, well, gee, you know, they're after the publicly traded uh, partnerships, and I believe they are. But as this thing unfolded, we thought, oh boy, this is all partnerships, all LLCs, basically. Well, that's right. And, and under the old rules, the old regime, there were really th- three different sets of rules. So if you were over 100 partners, you were going to fall into a different set of, of rules that um, largely are um, what's in place now. And, and so as a part of this tax reform or um, partnership audit update, what... Um, what the IRS did was is they're trying to make it easier for them to audit. And by without uh, unspoken, if you will, unstated is a revenue raiser uh, because they're going to collect money directly from the partnership. So they're going to get it quicker and, and they're going to know that they're getting all of it um, versus running it through partners' tax returns. Right. You know, it seems to me, again, that they were going after the, uh, the big business and a byproduct of this is my two-member LLC got caught in this, and I've got to comply with the same rules, basically, out of the gate as the publicly traded partnership. Now, I have some outs, and we want to talk about the outs, but but again, I think this is a case where they went after the big business, and all of a sudden, oh my goodness, all these partnerships got to do something. That's right, and, and in large part, that's because they changed... Uh, the the powers, if you will, of the tax matters partner. So under the old rules, every partnership had to designate a tax matters partner. It had to be a partner in the partnership. And from the IRS's perspective, what that individual was, uh, was a point of contact under the old rules. And so w- when they were going to initiate an audit, um, they would send the uh, audit notice to the tax matters partner. Um, you disclose that in your tax re- partnership tax return each year. That's really all the authority the tax matters partner had in the eyes of the IRS. In the old days. In the old days. I bet that's going to change. I bet you're going to tell us how that's changed. Well, it changed. I'm trying to stay ahead of you here. It, it You're changed. way ahead of me. Yep. I, I usually work in the marketing yeah. side of the department, so this is way above my head. So the rule changed, and, and they I don't know why, but they came up with a new designation that we call the Designated Partnership Representative. And they gave the designated partnership representative far more powers uh, and authority from the IRS's perspective 
than did the tax matters partners under the old rules. And so you need to designate who your partnership representative is because if you don't and you didn't elect out of the, these audit rules, the IRS can, can nominate one for you. Nobody knows yet what that looks like because we're, we're, they aren't going to... The first year that these rules apply to is 2018. The IRS doesn't audit in real time. So it's likely not going to be 2020 you know, before we start seeing the practical implications of what these rules really mean. So if, if, if I'm designated the partnership representative, that means I'm the king as far as the IRS is concerned. I can make the decisions that binds the, all of the partner group. That's correct. With regard to tax matters before the IRS, and and as a partner in that partnership, that causes that makes me nervous. Uh, and so when we talk about the operating agreement and making changes um, to it, one first and foremost is we need to change the language from tax matters partner to the designated partnership representative. Um, that needs to be updated. It may or may not be the same person, individual. What's new now? Um, with the, I'm going to call it the DPR, is the DPR can be an entity. Uh, it doesn't have to be a partner. Um, there may be reasons for that. We've had some clients ask us, hey, Ray and Associates, could you be our designated partnership representative? So in that agreement, as you pointed out, from the IRS's perspective, you can extend the statute of limitations. You can compromise you know, on an issue. Um, you can create liability tax liability for the other partners. Uh, and that power needs to be checked on the, on the uh, you know, on our side of right. the table. Right. So, hey, Siri, take a note. Call counsel. We need to get the partnership representative made, the election made as soon as possible. That's right. Okay. You talked about these opt-out agreements. So, I, I guess, as I think about that, okay, uh, I'm a small guy, small partnership. Uh, I don't have to, apparently I have choices. I don't have to follow these same rules. Uh, how do I do that? Can I make an election? What do I do? Sure. So what's interesting is, is when you back up and look at what the IRS's premise was for enacting these regulations um, and cha changing them, if you will, the audit rules, is, is they were trying to make it easier for them to audit but at the same time, they provide in some elections where you can elect out of these rules and basically back into the old rules for small partnerships. Okay. And, and what that means is- I like it. What that means is, is that the, the IRS comes in, audits the partnership, they come up with an adjustment. That adjustment then has to roll through the partner's tax returns. Um, you know, so, so much for simplification because most of the discussions we've had with our clients is if you're able to elect out, you're going to elect out. And there's tax related, but reasons on why you would do that. Okay. The election out is something that um, there's a couple of different ones. The um, the basic one, if you will, is made uh, is on a year by year basis. Year by year? With the okay. tax. Okay. Uh, actually in the tax return, there's a question about, are you electing out? Um, and that's done on a year by year basis. Unfortunately, there are some prohibitions on the ability to elect out. So if you have- I the, knew that was coming. Yeah. Come on, it couldn't be, it was too good to be true. So if you don't have the right partner types in, as partners in your partnership, then you can't elect out, cannot elect out. You have to, uh, okay. using this, this, uh, this election that's in the annual return. And I don't know where 
they came from on this, what their thinking was. But again, maybe going back to, hey, is it too good to be true? And yeah, you have an election out, but if you hold your interest as in a single member LLC, um, you can't elect out. Right. Cannot. If you've um, done estate planning and you may have transferred your interest to a grantor trust, cannot elect out. Um, if you have another partnership, so what we would call an upper tier partnership, that's a partner in your partnership, can't elect out. Right. Right. You know, I can think of a couple examples like uh, uh, maybe uh, a partnership that's an accounting firm, um, you know, law office, medical practice, uh, you know, larger one where, you know, partners have a tendency to come and go. You're admitting new partners and some are retiring. Uh, This election to opt out is pretty important for that group. It it is. When you you have a, a partnership where the owners turn over, you would want to elect out. And, and again, this goes back to the concept that the IRS doesn't audit in real time. So you and I may be uh, in a partnership here in 2018, but I may retire in 2019 and the IRS audits this year in 2020. So this concept of the year they're auditing is a later year when the partners may not be the same partners who existed in the year under audit. And what happens then? Well, if you didn't elect out, those partners are going to be on the hook for the tax on any adjustments. Right. Now, you'd mentioned, again, this uh, election uh, is uh, you have to make it annually. Correct. Because you got to look at your ownership annually and see if you you qualify. Right. And each um, year stands on its own. Sure. So there's the partnership. Uh, should you, uh, what's your recommendation? Should we put that the preference is in the, uh, what we want to do in the operating agreement? Is that something we can add to the operating agreement every year? It Well, it, it is something that can be added to the operating agreement, and we might argue it should be as to, in terms of discussing what the powers of the DPR are, what, what powers they have in terms of elections to make, this being one of them, you know, do they make that election each year, or expressly, explicitly to state that we they want to yes. elect out. That, that's the intent. Yeah. And now... Go, going hand in glove in that, though, is is then, okay, um, we may have, me, you, and Brad may be in a partnership today, and that's fine. We're all eligible to elect out, and we're going to elect out. But next year, we might uh, admit Becca, who, for appropriate non-tax reasons, you know, has her ownership in a different form that would make it, us now ineligible to elect out. And so, should we have language in our agreement that uh, limits your ability to tra- to have an owner that would prevent you from electing out. Again, that that's we're we're weighing the weeds on this, and that's a lot of focused on tax only things. But those are conversations sure. we're having with yeah. clients. And 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 again, I think you and I have looked at a couple pieces of tax software and the danger there. Uh, it, if you're using off the shelf uh, software for a business. You have to make that election because if you don't, I think that software is going to assume you want to follow uh, the new audit procedures. So you could make a mistake pretty easily sure. there without knowing that uh, that that you're under these new uh, procedures. That's right. So so again, I, I think we have to, it's a must, uh, we have to review and amend the partnership operating agreement for a couple things that we just talked about. The partner representative and maybe put the election uh, ideas within uh, uh, the document. 
But if you're going to go in for those two things, it's probably a good item to sit down with, you know, your CPA as well as counsel and look at maybe the other things in there that are outdated. Some of these operating agreements are probably 10, 15 years old. Well, and that's true. And, and part of the reason uh, for that is, is they get put on a shelf and you forget about them. But the other part of that is, is sometimes it can be difficult to amend an operating agreement. And it can be difficult because you got lots of partners and you got to have votes. And so you have to be, you know, you have to t- keep that in mind um, when, when you're looking at this issue. You know, it's a great way to do business partnership LLC, but as you and I pointed out, it's also probably the most complex entity structure. It, it absolutely is. It's it's fraught with landmines for the um, for the ignorant and uninformed, and and that's why you need a professional. Even if you're a uh, two man engineering uh, firm or a publicly traded partnership, these documents are are critical. But both sides. Uh, yep. You know, before we uh, wrap up, I want to want to. Uh, exit the conversation about the operating agreement and ask you about the, you know, some of the new language and discussion that's up about the self-employment tax that that is coming down on the limited liability companies that maybe we haven't seen in the past. Yeah, so we've had some um, what I'll call some um, clarity in, um, in the guidance that's available on the whole issue of partners in a partnership and being subject to self-employment tax on all of the pass-through income allocated to them, not just guaranteed payments that they may get, a, their, their wage equivalent. That really transpired through the results of some court cases, tax court, um, that have fallen out in, uh, in the last 18, 24 months now. And so we've we've had conversations, um, and, and we'll continue with our clients about how to deal with that. And, and one of the options could be again going back to choice of entity is maybe electing S. It's not it's not a um, a be all end all and it doesn't fit every fact pattern, but that certainly is one way um, to address the issue. So a lot of business planning ahead in uh, you know 2019 and early 2020, and and good place to start is this uh, this document. Our guest today has been Chris Axine, senior tax partner with Ray and Associates. Uh, Chris is located in Ray's Dublin, Ohio office. But you'll see him around the state at all the other Ray offices from time to time. So thanks again for joining us, Chris. Thanks for having me, Dave. And I'll see you on the golf course. Well, I'm going to be uh, working this summer. So uh, have at it. I've got I've to do some other uh, work this summer. I don't have t- time to play like you tax guys. Clearly, this is a complex topic with lots of serious implications. Listeners, if you'd like to learn more about the new IRS partnership audit rules, you can shoot us an email at contactus at raycpa.com. Or for those of you watching on today's episode of YouTube, you can leave your question in the comments section below. In the meantime, please take a moment to give this episode a big thumbs up, share it with your professional network, and if you haven't already, go ahead and subscribe to Unsuitable on Ray Radio anywhere you choose to listen to your favorite podcast. Until next time, I'm Dave Kane, encouraging you to loosen up your tie and think outside the box. The views expressed on Unsuitable on Ray Radio are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Ray and Associates. The podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended to replace the professional advice you would receive elsewhere. Consult with a trusted advisor about your unique situation so they can expertly guide you to the best solution for your specific circumstance.